From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Two people with ties to Colorado are among the 19 indicted in Georgia. They're accused of helping to illegally subvert the 2020 election results. We'll talk about their connections here and what's next. Plus, the cases against Coloradans arrested in the January 6th insurrection. Then, appointing more women to the bench in Colorado and what still needs to be done to diversify the state's judiciary. We need to also push for more Latinx, Latino, Latina judges. They do not have a proportionate representation on the bench, let alone within the law. And what Colorado's doing to ensure judges meet high standards of ethics. Colorado shows itself as a model for the rest of the country and it you know, blazes the trail here. And later, Colorado wonders about waterfalls. Every day, Colorado Public Radio works to deliver you meaningful news and music, using the power of the human voice in all its forms, so you can build a deeper connection to your community. To do that, CPR relies on your support. Join CPR's membership community for the first time as a monthly donor, and your Evergreen membership will be the gift that keeps on giving, supporting the resource that keeps you listening. It's easy to donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Former President Donald Trump is expected to surrender to Georgia law enforcement today on charges that he led illegal efforts to subvert the 2020 election in that state. Two people with Colorado ties are among the 18 other people charged in the case. CPR's public affairs editor, Megan Verlee, joins us now to tell us about that. Hi, Megan. Hey, Chandra. Let's start with John Eastman. He's accused of trying to help set up a fraudulent slate of Trump electors in Georgia, as well as submitting false claims about election fraud in court documents. And while he was allegedly doing this, he was also affiliated with CU Boulder, right? Yes, he was in the midst of a one-year appointment as a visiting scholar of conservative thought at CU's Bruce Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization. So right from the get-go, Colorado suddenly found itself involved in this drama that was playing out uh, actually in a lot of other states uh, in the, the last months of 2020. How did he get involved in Trump's effort to overturn the election? Well, I should say that his involvement with uh, the election and the Trump campaign in general actually started before that. Over the summer in 2020, he wrote an, a inflammatory, uh, many would say racist op-ed suggesting that Kamala Harris could not be VP because of her parents' citizenship status at the time she was born. It's a reading of the Constitution that I would say not many share with mm. him. Um, and then after the election, uh, he went to an academic conference in Philadelphia. And while he was there, he met with a legal team that was building Trump's efforts to fight election outcomes in crucial states. He talked to The New York Times about it, said he only met with him for about 15 minutes. It was long enough to give him COVID. Mm. And it also started, <laughs> I know, that's COVID, wow. sort of an interesting detail there. But it was also enough to start his involvement. He went on to write a memo that has been very crucial in investigations of January 6th and now in these criminal cases that laid out a step-by-step -step plan for states to nominate uh, false slates of electors and for uh, Vice President Pence on January 6th to use that as an excuse not to certify the election and trigger a series of events that Eastman argued could allow Trump to stay in office. 
Now, what was CU's reaction to his involvement? Well, if you go back to that op-ed, it definitely started an uproar on campus. Uh, Chancellor Phil DiStefano condemned it, but nearly 800 people associated with the university signed a letter wanting more. They wanted the Benson Center to speak out against Eastman and show a renewed commitment to being anti-racist. And so after the election, uh, when he got involved in attempts to overturn it, um, the the news that he was on the Trump legal team uh, definitely caused concern on campus. And then he spoke at the rally before uh, January, uh, on January 6th, before the storming of the Capitol. Wow. And immediately after that, CU condemned him in, in very strong terms. Well, I imagine CU had to address that, right? Oh, exactly. Uh, and Uh, Not too long after that, the school also uh, said that it was banning Eastman from representing the Benson Center in any way for the remainder of his appointment um, and uh, that he would not have any spring classes. Although they said in that case that they had been canceled for low enrollment, not because of his involvement in January 6th. Well, did they consider rescinding his appointment? There were definitely a lot of calls for them to do that, uh, but DeStefano concluded and argued uh, to the, the student body and the faculty that the school legally couldn't, uh, that what Eastman was doing uh, was political speech protected by the First Amendment, and that as a public institution, CU uh, would be violating his constitutional rights if it took uh, sort of termination action against him for uh, his involvement in the, the Trump efforts. They, uh, I will note that Eastman, uh, thought that they were actually violating his constitutional rights, even by uh, trimming back his role on campus. He Mm. threatened to sue, but has not actually followed through on suing the school. So Eastman's contract with CU ended two years ago. Was that the end of his connection to Colorado? Actually, no. Uh, And I find this really interesting. His name popped back up in our news coverage uh, earlier this year, or actually just in the last couple of months. He is one of the attorneys representing the Colorado GOP in a lawsuit that is attempting to overturn the law that opens Colorado's primaries. So basically, the the Colorado GOP is arguing that unaffiliated voters should not be allowed to participate in party primaries. And Eastman is on that lawsuit. Given his troubles in Georgia and the fact that he is facing disbarment proceedings in California, uh, it does seem quite likely that other lawyers will be leading on that case. So that's John Eastman. But there is another Georgia defendant with Colorado ties by the name of Jenna Ellis, right? Yes. She was another member of Trump's legal team after the election. She's been indicted on two counts, uh, racketeering and attempting to subvert a public official uh, for claims that she made in a a Georgia legislative hearing. Uh, Her roots in Colorado are are actually deeper than Eastman. Uh, She's a lawyer based here in the state. She taught at Colorado Christian University for a few years. Uh, She's still listed as a fellow uh, at the Centennial Institute, which is affiliated Mm. with that school. Um, And her involvement in the efforts to overturn the 2020 election have earned her a censure from Colorado's legal regulators for making false claims about the election uh, in the media. Hmm. Now, there was one aspect of the Georgia indictment that I think might have sounded a bit familiar to Coloradans if they heard about it. One of the defendants is a Georgia election official who is accused of breaching the security of her office's election equipment by letting people affiliated with the Trump campaign have access to the machines and software. 
Yeah, it sounds a bit like a case that's going on here in Colorado, doesn't it? <laughs> Very familiar. Yes, that would be former Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters. She is facing state charges right now uh, on an accusation that she allowed outside parties to access her voting equipment in her office and make copies of the hard drive, uh, copies that eventually kind of made it out into the election conspiracy world. Um, there is a big difference here, though. The The former official in Georgia is charged with doing that during the controversy right after mm. the 2020 election. Uh, what Tina Peters is accused of doing didn't take place until the following year. Uh, and there are national Stop the Steal figures involved uh, in that case. But at least at this point, there aren't allegations that people directly part of the Trump campaign participated in it. Where does the Tina Peters case stand now? Well, they are slowly moving toward a trial. Uh, it was originally scheduled for the spring, then for the summer. Now it's uh, slated for October. Uh, and when it does happen, you can bet that we will be covering it pretty closely. Megan, before I let you go, I was hoping you could update us on one final aspect of the 2020 post-election conflicts, for lack of a better term. What's happening with the Coloradans who've been arrested for participating in the January 6th insurrection? Well, uh, there are more than a dozen of them, um, and their cases are really starting to move through the legal system. Uh, we have seen convictions in some of the most high-profile cases. Just last week, Jeffrey Sable, a, a geophysicist who uh, apparently tried to flee to Switzerland after the riot, uh, was found guilty on three felony charges. He awaits sentencing. Robert Gieswein, who prosecutors accuse of also being involved in the militia movement, was sentenced to four years in federal prison uh, for assaulting officers. Uh, and other people who've been arrested, uh, some of them have pled guilty um, and gotten lighter sentences, and some are still pending. Megan, thank you. Thanks, Chandra. That was CPR Public Affairs reporter Megan Verlee with an update about the Colorado connections to the 2020 efforts to overturn the election. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go As A River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. With support from Elevation Press of Colorado. Many members of the state's legal community have been very vocal about their desire to see more diversity on the bench. They're also taking the time to celebrate what has been described as historic levels of diversity among those now serving, including several women, people of color, and LGBTQ people. This month, Amanda Hopkins, a woman, was named chief judge overseeing the 12th Judicial District, which includes Alamosa, Castilla, Mineral, Rio Grande, and Sawatch counties. And next month, Arapahoe County Judge Laquanya Baker, a Black woman appointed by the governor in July of 2022, will transition into a new role as a district court judge in the 18th Judicial District. That includes Arapahoe, Douglas, Elbert, and Lincoln counties. In that same judicial district, Victoria Klingensmith, a Korean-American woman who grew up in Metro Denver, is set to begin as a judge on September 1st. Danielle Rash is a senior assistant city attorney in the Denver City Attorney's Office and a member of the Colorado Association of Black Women Attorneys. We spoke in March when 19 Black female judges were celebrated. What would you say that women and Black women bring to the judiciary? We bring 
compassion. We bring a history of struggle. We bring a history of ourselves not always being recognized as first off people, let alone females and women in society who deserve a voice. Where do you see room for growth in Colorado's effort to diversify the state judiciary? We need to also push for more Latinx, Latino, Latina judges. Um, They do not have a a proportionate representation on the bench, let alone within the law. There are areas where we do need to push to ensure that people see themselves in those people who who become attorneys, right? That that they can see themselves getting to there, um, that there's a path of sponsorship, just like there is for what we would say are dominant culture individuals, right? So it's very, very important that we acknowledge that even though we're making strides and have made strides in Colorado, there are still very much areas where we can do better. We need to do better and we need to support each other in those efforts. Most of the Black female members of the judiciary in Colorado were appointed since 2019 in just the past four years. I also talked with Gary Jackson. He's a former senior Denver County Court judge who spoke at the event. In Colorado, we did not have our first woman judge until 1964, and that was Judge Zeta Weinshank, and she was on the Denver Municipal Court. So when we talk about saluting Black women judges, whether they be Black or of any other particular race, it is significant because the history is so recent in terms of saluting women judges at all. So I start with the history of Zeta Weinshank in 1964, and then I also think make of note that our very first Black woman judge was not appointed until 1994. Wow. That was Claudia Jordan. That was 30 years after Judge Weinshank, and it's of significance. It was to the same bench. Both of them were selected to the Denver Municipal or Denver County Court. And so we are now saluting the Black women judges. And in about a four-year period of time, there were approximately 15 Black judges appointed. And um, uh, many of those Black judges that were appointed in that four-year period of time were women. So there's reason. There's reason to celebrate. What was the kind of feeling that you got by being a part of this event? There was a noticeable energy level. There was a noticeable joy of being there. It was apparent this coming together of all these women judges not only was historic, but it was uh, a joyful experience. It was an, uh, a time to be able to bond together because we're talking about judges from all different levels, uh, municipal court, county court, state court. And so great energy, great joy. Can you share with us some of the data about diversity? In October of 2018, that was actually a month or two before Governor Polis uh, started his term of office, Colorado was on the verge of having zero Black district court judges 
throughout the state of Colorado. And when I say zero, we're talking about zero out of approximately 230 judgeships that are available. Also, we were on the verge of having zero black appellate court judges. And that was out of 30 appellate court judges, seven on the Supreme Court, 23 on the Colorado Court of Appeals. And so as of the night of the event, what had taken place is that there are currently 15 black judges on the state court bench, nine serve at the district court level. What is significant in terms of those uh, new appointments is that the first time in history we have a black judge in Boulder, Colorado, Dia mm. Lindsay. The first time in history we have two judges in Adams County, Mattache Jean, Marcus Ivey. The first time in history, we have a black woman district court judge in Colorado Springs, Frances Johnson. So this is what I consider to be remarkable history in a four-year period of time. In addition, we have six openly LGBTQ judges that were appointed in 2021 and 2022, including one to the Colorado Court of Appeals. However, during this four-year period of time, the progress has not been as great with Latinx judges. Mm. In 2008, we had 27 Latinx judges. Currently, we have 32, so there's been an increase of five. But the problem with that number is that if you look at the Colorado population, 22% of the Colorado population is Hispanic Americans, yet only 9% of the judges are Hispanic Americans. So that's, um, that is what, in my opinion, still a severe need that we have to address. With respect to the black population, we still have no black judges on the Colorado Court of Appeals. We have no black judges on the Supreme Court level. And these are the two highest levels of court in Colorado. These are the two courts that are making the highest level decisions affecting the population of Colorado. Yet there are no black judges on either one of those courts. With respect to Asian Americans, there is a report called the Legislative Report of 2022, authored by Sumi Lee, who is our outreach coordinator. She was hired in um, approximately uh, May of 2019. This is a position outreach coordinator, which is unique in the United States. It's my understanding that Colorado is the only state that had a outreach coordinator as of 2019. But her job is working on increasing judicial diversity at all levels. In October of 2018, I had a personal call to action where I saw the need. I helped form what was called the Colorado Bar Association, Colorado Judicial Institute, Coalition on Judicial Diversity. We put together a team of 17 leaders from across the state, including about 23 different legal organizations that put together an action plan to address uh, judicial diversity that was focusing not only on Blacks and Hispanic Americans, but also Asian Americans, Native Americans, and the LGBTQ population. These efforts, with the assistance of Sumi Lee as the outreach coordinator, uh, resulted in different programs. 
there was a Dream Team 2.0 program in which aspiring individuals who wanted to be judges were matched with retired judges in a mentoring type situation that lasted for about six months. There were efforts by the various specialty bars, uh, such as the Sam Carey Bar Association, the Colorado Hispanic American Bar Association, the Colorado Women's Bar Association, where there'd be seminars to the membership on the value of being a judge, how you could put yourself in the best possible position in terms of the type of work that you did as a lawyer, the type of application that you would make in order to put yourself in a position to be appointed as a judge. And then there were efforts in terms of uh, addressing the judicial nominating commissions in the 23 judicial districts in terms of spotlighting on those districts the need for more diverse judges and how to address the pipeline issue as well as to address the lack of, let's say, diversity that has taken place in the past and to put each judicial nominating commission in a position to be able to fairly assess the quality and the qualifications of the applicants to be judges. So these are some of the things that were done to uh, address the lack of diversity in Colorado that I was seeing as of October of 2018. Judge Jackson, why is diversity important and valuable when it comes to the state judiciary? Well, it's important and valuable, not only with respect to the judiciary, but with all different uh, aspects of the legal profession. I know diversity is, is something that is important for the trust that our citizens feel when they are in a courtroom setting. And it is also a benefit to those individuals who were around me, either as a, an attorney, either as a prosecutor, either as a me being on, let's say, the board of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar or the board of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, uh, because the value of diversity is that we get to know each other, we get to have the benefit of each other's experiences, we get the benefit of being able to communicate with each other. And it's only through information that uh, we grow as people, we grow us as a profession. Going forward, what should the conversation be about the representation of more women and more diverse people in the state judiciary? Colorado is looked upon as being a um, state in which the population is increasing. The It's a state that is considered to be a progressive state. It is a state in which uh, we have been able to be recognized as a state in which a person is going to be able to succeed irrespective of past stereotypes. When I say that, Patricia Schroeder, who was our House of Representative person that was elected in 1972. Uh, she was the first woman. And she recently passed away. She recently passed away. We can look at Zeta Weinshank, who went from a Denver Municipal Court judge to being our very first woman federal judge. We can look at individuals like Norm Early, 
who became in Colorado its first black district attorney. And then we can look at the series of mayors in Denver that started with Wellington Webb, Federico Pena, Michael Hancock. What this shows is that Colorado is a state in which uh, leaders have come to the fore because of their talent, because of their creativity, and that stereotypes that have been created over past history have been broken. And so we have to continue this progressive nature of Colorado so that at the top of the legal profession, whether it be in the judiciary, whether it be in the boardrooms of uh, private uh, law firms, that there are diverse leaders in those rooms. Judge Jackson, thank you. Thank you for having me. Former Denver County Court Judge Gary Jackson speaking with me in March about a celebration of Black female judges serving here in our state. Four percent of judges in Colorado are Black. You heard Jackson mention Judge Zeta Weinshank. She passed away last October at the age of 89. She was a trailblazer who forged a path for women in Colorado's judiciary. She was the first woman to serve as a full-time Denver Municipal Court judge, a Denver District Court judge, and a federal judge for the District of Colorado. I spoke with Beth McCann, Denver's District Attorney and a member of the Colorado Women's Bar Association, about Judge Weinshank's legacy. Describe your relationship with Judge Weinshank. So I got to know Judge Weinshank many years ago when the Women's Bar really started back in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, And she was always a supporter of women lawyers. And at that time, I believe she was a judge in the state court, uh, district court. And so we um, began to work together on how to get more women appointed to the bench. Hmm. Because at that time, there were very few. And we didn't really know all the ins and outs of how you get appointed to be a judge. Uh, So she was quite helpful in helping us figure out how we could work together to get more women appointed to the bench. She has been described as a pioneering Colorado judge who forged a path for women in the judiciary. What comes to mind when you hear that? Well, I, I agree with that. As I said, she really helped us as we were just forming the women's bar to figure out how to work together and be more influential in getting women appointed. So, you know, we were young lawyers. We didn't really know how the system worked and we didn't know the politics of it. And so um, Zeta was really forging that path with us. And when a federal judge vacancy came available at the U.S. District Court in Denver, Zeta was interested in applying. And so we really worked hard to get her nominated and then appointed to be a U.S. District Court judge. And I believe she was the first woman federal judge in the state of Colorado. So she clearly was pioneering trailblazer for women in the judiciary. It's really interesting when you read about her career. It's really fascinating. She was among the first women to attend Harvard Law School, where she graduated in 1958. She's been described as brilliant, fair, and a compassionate judge. And she served as a municipal and then county court judge from 1964 to 1971, as a district court judge from 1972 to 1979, and as you pointed out, as a federal judge and senior federal judge from 1979 
2011. And uh, we should note that she was nominated to the federal bench by President Jimmy Carter. What did it mean to you personally as an attorney to see someone like Judge Weinshank in the positions that she held? It was remarkable and inspiring. Um, She served as a role model and a beacon, I think, to a lot of young attorneys, um, women attorneys in particular, who were interested in a judicial career. Because really, we just didn't, we didn't realize all that was involved in getting appointed and how you needed to know the right people and have the right people helping you in making phone calls. And women, you know, back then weren't really in those circles. Um, And Sometimes we still aren't in those circles, but um, at that time, we really weren't in those sort of power circles, which were dominated primarily by men. So for her to go to Harvard and then be able to get appointed to all those different judicial appointments was truly an inspiration. She was ahead of her time, really. You talked about how she was a part of shaping how judges are actually appointed in Colorado. Explain that for those who don't really understand the impact of, you know, being a part of that process. Sure. So um, we are fortunate in Colorado that we have judicial nominating commissions. So they are commissions of citizens, some lawyers, some not lawyers, who interview applicants and then send names to either the mayor or the governor, depending on the the court. But it's important that you know uh, people who know people, if you will, who are on the commission, because although I think we have a very good system in Colorado, it's still helpful for recommendations to come in from people that the commissioners know so that they trust the recommendations of those people. And then we also started a process where the governor's office and the mayor's office would ask the women's bar for a recommendation. So to this day, the women's bar provides input to the governor's office and the mayor's office when there are judicial vacancies. So that was really important for us to achieve that level of credibility where Mm. our view is respected and trusted. It took a while, but I think it's really developed into a very powerful system. Yeah, truly a lasting impact when you think about this process continuing to this day. You know, judges have reputations and for how they rule and how they, you know, really kind of conduct themselves. How would you describe how Judge Weinshank carried out her job? So I believe she was always fair. She listened. She was caring and compassionate, but, you know, decisive. Um, So I think she had all those qualities that are important for a judge. She was smart. She knew the law. She was prepared. And she was listening, though, to the arguments that the attorneys made and rendered her decisions based on the law, which is what what we want from a judge, but also treating people with respect and dignity that were in her courtroom. In closing, you know, put this into context for us. What should Coloradans know about the legacy and lasting impact of Judge Zita Weinshank? Definitely that she was a trailblazer for women to serve in the judiciary. She was supportive. She was 
inspirational and really paved the way for many of the women who are on the bench today. And we have a lot more women now. And I think in large part, thanks to Zita Weinshank. She was, she was a trailblazer. Beth McCann, thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure. Denver's District Attorney Beth McCann on the legacy of Judge Zita Weinshank, who died last October at the age of 89. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You expect context from CPR News, but sometimes the news won't wait. Sign up for the Lookout daily email from CPR News, a rundown of important fact-based reporting in your inbox every day. And when major news breaks, you'll also get Lookout alerts. Sign up at CPR.org Lookout. Today we're talking about various aspects of the Colorado judiciary. Before the break, you heard about some historic judicial appointments Governor Polis has made during his tenure. But once judges are appointed, what is the code of ethics they are expected to uphold? We brought that question to Christopher Gregory. He's the executive director of the Colorado Commission on Judicial Discipline, the entity that oversees judicial discipline in our state. We spoke in April. The commission is only one of three parts of an oversight system that we have here in Colorado, where we select our judges, we have a system for uh, choosing whether to retain those judges, and then we have our disciplinary system. And the disciplinary system is what the uh, commission itself is concerned about. But this overall system that Colorado has, it's really a product of both history and experience. Well, of course, Part of what you do is accept complaints. What types of complaints do you most often hear in your position? You know, if you you look at what a a judge's responsibilities are, the typical complaints that we see, you know, kind of follow that. There could be a question of whether a judge has lacked diligence or is delayed in performing their judicial functions. Perhaps a judge um, has had some exhibition of uh, unprofessional demeanor in the language they use and uh, the behaviors that they've had both in and out of the courtroom. There's some circumstances where a judge might uh, use their staff for personal errands or personal purposes. Any sort of criminal conduct that a judge might be involved in, including like DUIs, there could be uh, sexual or other harassment that either happens uh, inside or outside of the courtroom. Other examples include improper political activities or non-compliance with the rules uh, that uh, apply to retention elections that judges are expected to undergo uh, after after certain terms once they're appointed. There's also uh, issues if a judge fails to make a financial uh, disclosure or mm. disclose a relationship that he or she might have within the courthouse. Those things, you know, are, are grounds for uh, a judicial disciplinary proceeding. And there's also uh, examples of uh, judges that have uh, misused their contempt power have expressed discriminatory remarks or expressed bias in some way. And those are the types of situations that the commission uh, would look at. Uh, As far as our caseload, however, there seems to be a lot of misperception or confusion over uh, the notion that if somebody has an unfavorable ruling or an unfavorable result in the case, that they can use the commission as essentially a uh, appeal or uh, uh, an alternative to uh, appellate review. Mm. And the commission doesn't have any power to undo another court's uh, a court's order or that, that sort of thing. So you're, you're kind of uh, referring to, say, like the attorney who maybe did not get a favorable verdict, so to speak, or ruling, 
they may in turn try to file a complaint against that judge or justice regarding that. Right. And, you know, those uh, those types of requests for evaluation are kind of categorically uh, dismissed um, unless in that request there's something else there. You know, one of those examples that I just gave, uh, something that would go against our written ethical standards, which should come out of the uh, Code of Judicial Conduct, something like that. Uh, it's it's really the commission's uh, duty to enforce that that ethical standard that we have in the state. What are judges and justices in the state of Colorado required to disclose? So under the Colorado Code of Judicial Conduct, we have different canons. There's, there's four basic canons and then uh, more specific rules that regulate conduct. And there's uh, just a handful of rules that are real specific to the question that you've just asked. Mm -hmm. And just in a real basic sense, what they require is that a judge cannot accept income, gifts, loans, or other benefits that would undermine his or her independence, integrity, or impartiality. And then we have, beyond the code of judicial conduct itself, expectations under Colorado's public disclosure law. And what that requires is that judges and other public officials have to uh, file annually and uh, sometimes more frequently disclosures uh, with the uh, Colorado Secretaries of State's office that include an accounting of the gifts they've received, loans, benefits, and uh, other extrajudicial income exceeding a value of $50. The reports and disclosures that are made to the uh, Secretary of State's office are publicly available. So if someone... Uh, is interested, they can, can contact the uh, Secretary of State's office and see what a judge has received. Uh, one thing that I am really struck with is that it seems uh, as though there's a national conversation right now about uh, the U.S. Supreme Court needing to uh, be subject to a written code of ethics that goes beyond just aspirational um, statements or uh, recommendations. And what's uh, interesting about that is that uh, Colorado had that exact same conversation back in the 1960s when our current system of merit-based judicial selection, retention, and discipline was adopted by the uh, voters and added into our state constitution. And I think some of the uh, you know reasons and circumstances that were in place then are also at issue now as uh, I think that same question of uh, what what types of standards and things should uh, be applied to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. And interestingly, in February of uh, this year, the American Bar Association had passed a resolution asking the U.S. Supreme Court or the federal government to uh, essentially adopt uh, a system very similar to uh, what we use here in, in Colorado. Do any of these requirements in terms of code of conduct and disclosures, does it change based on your specific position as, a, as, say, a judge or a justice? So, for example, if you're a county court judge versus a district court judge or a state Supreme Court justice, is it all uniform or does it vary based on your specific position in, say, jurisdiction? Well, and I think you, you bring up a, an important point, which is what is the jurisdiction of uh, our uh, Commission on Judicial Discipline? And it, it's uh, limited to state court judges that hold their office through Article 6 of the state constitution. Mm. So that means we have jurisdiction over Colorado Supreme Court justices, uh, members of the Colorado Court of Appeals, district court judges, and uh, county court judges. Uh, there are some exceptions to that uh, jurisdiction that uh, 
uh, relate more to the Denver County Court, for instance, is a kind of conglomeration of both state laws and they enforce municipal ordinances. The Denver County uh, Court judges are appointed by the mayor of Denver rather than the governor of Colorado. And uh, because of that, they have their own separate judicial uh, disciplinary commission. To, to, to respond to your specific question, you know, is this uniformly applied? Yes, all the state court judges in Colorado subject to the jurisdiction of the commission would be held to the same standard, whether they're the uh, Supreme Court uh, justice or uh, a county court judge in, in Baca County or, or, or uh, one of the more rural parts of Colorado. Uh, everybody's held to the same standard. Even magistrates uh, that work uh, within the judicial system, but who are regulated through uh, the Supreme Court's Office of Attorney Regulation, because they're viewed as attorneys rather than judges, the code of judicial conduct is applied to them through that oversight process. Wow, interesting. Part of also what you do is accept complaints. So if a member of the public has a complaint regarding a judicial officer, how do they go about getting that investigated? So anyone uh, can request an evaluation of judicial conduct. It can be uh, submitted anonymously. Uh, however, if it is submitted anonymously, we don't have the opportunity to uh, explain to the person requesting that evaluation what the outcome was or if we received a response, that sort of thing. But we have a form for that that can be found on our website. Um, we also accept if uh, somebody submits a letter that uh, basically explains the, the substance of what their concern is. Why do you think all of this is important? I think it, it comes from the history behind it all. So here in Colorado, we developed, you know, essentially as a uh, as a boomtown or a, you know a frontier community before statehood, where many communities would would kind of pop up overnight as they were created. New judges and uh, a new judicial system was uh, implemented, and so under that frontier system that we had, our judges used to be chosen through partisan elections. And it was a very decentralized system where there was the Colorado Supreme Court, a number of district court judges throughout the state, and an even greater number of justices of the peace. However, you know, because of that politicized and uh, kind of diffuse system, there were some real significant problems and a kind of a prevalence of competence, corruption, and bias within the judiciary. And it was out of that that in 1962, the Colorado legislature proposed a structural reform that was referred to voters through a constitutional amendment. It abolished the justices of the peace. It heightened the qualifications for uh, the judges that would serve under Article 6. And then it authorized the uh, Colorado Supreme Court to standardize rules for the lower courts. Well, with that initial reform, there was also a movement uh, that was started through the League of Women Voters with the support of the uh, Colorado Bar Association to initiate a constitutional amendment through the voters. And that amendment, Amendment 3, it became effective in 1967. But it was what was so critical here. It abolished partisan judicial elections in favor of the Missouri plan of uh, merit-based selection. And under that Missouri plan, we have how judges are now selected in the state of Colorado. Anyone that meets the basic qualifications can apply for that position. They then have their applications considered by nominating commissions. There's a nominating commission for each judicial district, plus a statewide nominating commission that nominates the Colorado Supreme Court justices and also members of the Colorado Court of Appeals. 
And once, you know, those nominating commissions have done their work, they send three nominees' uh, names to the governor who makes the ultimate choice as to who would be appointed to be a judge. Once that appointment happens through the governor's office, all judges serve a provisional two-year term, after which they're subject to a retention election. And that's kind of what we've seen, I think, most recently in uh, 2022, that uh, judges uh, were up uh, on the ballot with the question of whether they'd be retained or not. Once a uh, judge is initially retained, then they are subject to future retention elections. It's a 10-year term for the Colorado Supreme Court. It's an eight-year term for the Colorado Court of Appeals. It's a six-year term for the district courts, and it's a four-year term for the county courts. One thing that's really notable in Colorado is that we have a mandatory age of 72 years old, which judges have to retire from active status. With respect to those retention elections, in 1988, the legislature created uh, judicial performance commissions to help educate and inform Colorado voters during those retention cycles. And the focus of performance is just uh, looking at a judge's general competence and uh, their overall performance. And it really is up to the voters if that judge remains in office or not through that election process. It's really important to note just the uh, chronology here. So the fact that Colorado had created a enforceable code of ethics before it was even you know, proposed nationally through the ABA, those changes to the uh, code of conduct didn't happen until 1972. It's really significant because I think uh, Colorado shows itself as a, uh, a model for the rest of the country and, and kind of uh, you know blazed the trail here. Wow. Learning a lot. Any final thoughts you'd like to add to this discussion? There's anything in all this is, is the public should have confidence that our judicial system is is working. And by having these these ethical standards and, you know, having the uh, commission serve in its role, uh, of, of sort of monitoring and enforcing these things. That, that's what this is really all about. Very eye-opening. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. Christopher Gregory is the executive director of the Colorado Commission on Judicial Discipline. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Pueblo Chili may not be as well-known as its cousin from New Mexico, the Hatch Chili, but fans of fiery flavor know which one tastes better. The pepper from Pueblo is also known as the Mirasol, which translates looking at the sun. And indeed, it does point upwards as it grows under bright southern Colorado skies. Latino and Italian farmers have grown it for more than a century, but in 2005, Colorado State University released an improved variety, thicker and meatier, better for roasting and dicing into green chili, spooned over burritos, enchiladas, and just about everything. The pepper has its own day at the Colorado State Fair, as well as a chili and frijole festival and a specialty license plate. And when the Denver Broncos offered Hatch Chili products at concession stands, local chili fans pushed back. The rivalry was hot, more than a little spicy, and in the end, confirmed Colorado's love for the Pueblo Chili. A Colorado postcard from CPR. When you go on a hike in Colorado's high country, there's no end to the wonders you'll see, and that includes waterfalls. CPR's Jenna McMurtry set out to answer a listener question about the state's waterfalls and found that this summer is an especially great time to see them. Will Snyder moved to Colorado a year and a half ago with the hope of spending more time outdoors. As a park ranger for Denver's city parks, he gets to do just that for work. But finding places to go hasn't always been easy. 
Where are the best secluded lakes to camp out at? And do you have waterfalls? And until recently, Snyder hadn't seen a lot of the natural features Colorado is known for. I'm from Florida. We don't really have waterfalls there. Uh, there's like no height. There's no elevation anywhere. But showing is so much more fun and useful than telling. We went for a hike. It's uh, oh, it's exhilarating. <laughs> I think um, wow, I can hear it. <laughs> I don't know what to think right now. I'm trying not to fall down this trail. <laughs> It's a sunny blue sky day in Staunton State Park, about 40 miles east of Denver. We're a few miles outside the town of Conifer, off Highway 285. And we're on our way to Elk Falls. This was like the best year for waterfalls because of all the snow. That's Susan Joy Paul. She's a more seasoned Coloradan. She's called the state home for the last three decades. Oh no, I think I'll be fine. These van uh, hiking boots are pretty grippy. I asked her to come along for the hike since she's the one who recommended the trail in the first place. That's because she's the author of several hiking guidebooks in Colorado, which makes her a sort of waterfall connoisseur. There's uh, 483, I believe, known named ones, but there's literally thousands that aren't named or recorded. In my last book, I have 100 hikes, but if you add them all up, there's like 120 to 150 waterfalls. Some of them have multiple waterfalls on the hikes. That's probably how many I've been to. According to Susan, Elk Falls is also the biggest waterfall that's close to Metro Denver. Holy crap. Look at the waterfall. Woo! <laughs> that's so incredible. Whoa! Is this what you expected? <laughs> yeah, well, yes and no. I've seen waterfalls, but never like in person. That's yeah. a big one. Until last year, the hike to Elk Falls was a 12-mile trip. But thanks to a new parking lot, it's now around seven and a half miles. Wow, it really like falls and splashes and then when it gets down the rocks, it like slows down almost to a creep. You see it like yeah, at the bottom? Right? It's just like kind of flowing nice and easy. Uh-huh, it's gorgeous, wow. Yeah, wow. there's a real organized chaos to it. This isn't just any type of waterfall. This is actually called a horsetail waterfall. See how it drops and then bounces off like a horsetail? Okay. okay. There's all different kinds. There's shoot falls. We also got falls, it largely to ourselves, although it was a Wednesday morning, which Susan says can help a lot. She has a few more recommendations for those looking for other waterfall hikes off the beaten path. While they also include secluded lakes, they do involve a bit more driving. There's Continental Falls in Breckenridge, Bridal Veil Falls in Rocky Mountain National Park, and Browns Creek Falls near Nathrop. But Susan's all-time favorite is tucked away in the South San Juan wilderness, about five hours southwest of Denver. It's called Rough Creek Falls. No matter how many hikes she's done, Susan still gets excited to see a waterfall. I don't care how many waterfalls you go to or how many hikes you do, every one is like a new experience for me. And it's so dependent on the weather, the terrain, the people you're with make a huge difference in the experience. And today's was, you know, I just can't top it. It was amazing being with you guys. Will feels the same way. The hike was a lot easier than I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be a long, pretty torturous on the feet kind of trek towards like a waterfall. But it was, it was nice and relaxed and you get a little bit of everything. I loved it. I had a good time. Go do it. I'm Jenna McMurtry, CPR News. This is addictive. Hiking to waterfalls is very addictive. <laughs> 
Go to CPR.org to see pictures of Elk Falls. You can also ask your own question about our state through Colorado Wonders. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC. Jam, she'll be back.